It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This week's podcast was recorded at the Shoreditch Electric Light Station on March the 1st in partnership with Shell. Hi there. My name is Sinead Lynch. I am Shell's UK country chair. Shell's been an oil and gas company for almost 100 years. So the fact that we are hosting a debate on the future of mobility and alternate fuels may surprise some of you. However, we are a company that recognises that the way in which energy is produced and the way in which energy is used needs to change. And so we are making changes. We're making adjustments in our operations and in the product offerings that we provide to our customers. Both of these things help support the UK government's Climate Change Act and the Paris Agreement. Some of the things we're doing include fast charging posts for EVs and hydrogen fueling in our service stations. But this is an area where there are as many questions as there are answers. So we know we don't have all the solutions. We really want to encourage discussion around this subject and we want to learn from others at every opportunity. That's why we partnered with Intelligence Squared to ignite a debate among an exciting panel, our chair, TV and radio broadcaster Edith Bowman and a live audience in Shoreditch. If you want to join the conversation, use hashtag make the future online to have your say. There is a lot to talk about. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Welcome along this evening. Thank you very much for being here. I've lived in London for 20 years and I use all types of transport. Today, I use the number 46 and 24 bus. I use the Northern Line. I use my feet and I used Uber as well. Uh, And as a London living and working, I think having those options and those opportunities to get around the city, be that for work, be that for school run, be that for pleasure, is, is a wonderful thing that we have so many options, but it's about the future and what is on offer. We are witnessing a transport revolution in London and around the world, and most of us here tonight have used Uber or Uber Pool if things are a bit tight at the end of the month. Uh, And we're seeing more and more electric vehicles on our streets and are reading about these driverless cars that we're about to see drop on us any day. There's a lot of investment going on into public transport and public spaces too. This year, the London Tube map is being redrawn as Crossrail is opened and the Night Tube continues to expand. City spaces are being transformed with schemes such as the pedestrianisation of Oxford Street. Tonight then we're going to be examining what you and I, because we're all affected by it, can be doing to get actively involved and make sure that our city transport develops in the ways that most of us want. That is giving us cheaper, greener and more reliable ways of getting around. Uh, we've also got a little poll that we would like you to get involved in tonight, if you wouldn't mind, asking a question and the following question. This is the question. Would you... 
give up the prospect of ever owning a car in favour of shared transport solutions which would cut London's pollution? So that's the question that we would love your answer on. To uh, answer that question, just go to the uh, Shell Twitter, which is at Shell underscore UK Limited. So at Shell underscore UK Limited, cast your vote and we'll announce the numbers and the results of the poll at the end of the night. Right then, on to our panel. Next to me, I have Fred Jones who is Uber's head of cities in the UK and Ireland, where he leads on Uber's expansion into new cities and towns and underserved areas. He also oversees the growth of Uber's electric vehicle and mobility products. Welcome, Fred. Thank, Thank you, you very much for having me. Eugenia Olsey. Welcome, Eugenia. Eugenia is creative technologist at the Paris-based open innovation consultancy company 5x5. Now, Eugenia's work focuses on using programme design and code to understand and address problems in today's cities. She's especially interested in technology's role in the future of transportation and urban living. Jimmy Bartlett, welcome. Uh, one of the UK's leading authorities on the ways in which new technologies, social media and modern communications are impacting our lives. He's also director of the Centre for the Analysis of social media. If anyone in the room has ever watched the TV comedy show Silicon Valley, you may well have seen Eric Bachman reading Jamie's book, <laughs> The Dark Net, Inside the Digital Underworld. Very proud Just of that. gone up there yeah, in my estimation as well. <laughs> Me too. And Radicals, Outsiders Changing the World. And he presented a fantastic series on the BBC recently <clears throat> called Secrets of Silicon Valley. Jamie, welcome. And last but by no means least, Christian Walmer. Welcome, Christian. Uh, he is one of the UK's top commentators on transport, especially on Britain's railway industry. He was shortlisted for a candidate for Labour in the 2016 London mayoral election. He is an advocate for cycling and his latest book, which I read over the last two nights, is very good, Driverless Cars on a Road to Nowhere. There is no question mark at the end of that, by the way, so I think you very much made it clear where you stand. <laughs> So um, I'd like to ask you all just to kind of, you know, warm you up for the night. Um, how did you all get here this evening, Fred? Well, I, uh, I actually had a meeting this morning in Birmingham, so uh, I've obviously got an Uber, quite a few today. Eugenia? Um, I walked to the metro in Paris, to the Eurostar uh, tube, and then walking here. Jamie? Well, I normally cycle everywhere, but then, yeah, yeah, but then, then after some heavy lobbying from my girlfriend, she made me take the bus. But I could have cycled because the roads are actually pretty okay. <laughs> so, the, yeah, like the most dangerous bit was that final walk, skidding from the bus stop to, to here. Christian. Uh, well, I went sledding down Hampstead Heath this morning. Um, uh, but I actually, must have just missed you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but actually, um, my wife tried to dissuade me from cycling, but I said, no, no, the main roads are fine. And actually, the main roads were fine, so I cycled here. Oh, you're wow. stronger-willed than I am, then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, great, great stuff. I've been at it longer with her wife, probably. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to start with our first round of questions. Fred, I'm going to start with you, if that's okay. Um, with Uber, you're working on the expansion of, of putting Uber into more cities uh, and also on the introduction of more electric vehicles into the fleet. How do you see these changes improving the lives of city dwellers? Is it about lower transport costs and, and also how are you addressing lower pollution as well? 
So we're all about how we can reduce individual car ownership and use. And so how can we convince people to leave the keys at home and you know, take an Uber, walk, public transport to get where they want to go? And the only way to do that is to have a reliable and affordable alternative. So you know, if you're worried about, will I be able to get a car the other end? Um, you know, will it be there? Will I have to wait 20 minutes, 40 minutes? Is it going to cost me a fortune? You're just not going to do it. You're going to, you're going to choose to drive, um, and obviously that creates pollution, congestion, and a huge amount of land that's just wasted on parking in city centers. And so if you think about if we can remove all that, actually, you know, we can cut congestion, it frees up loads of land to do much better things, whether that's parks, more housing, space for charging electric vehicles. Um, and so we can really, you know, I think, create our cities uh, that are much more livable. Mm. So that's really what we're focusing on, really at the core of Uber's mission. And it's, it's quite interesting, though, because there was a recent survey done that, that came back with 68%, I think it was, of 16 to 34-year-olds said they were still certain or very keen to own their own car uh, when presented with alternative options such as car sharing. What do you think you have to do to try and to skew that and to alter that perception and that? Well, I think we're just at the, the start of a pretty fundamental shift. Um, you know, YouGov did some polling uh, just of Uber users in London. In fact, nationally, but, you know, in, in London we've done it for a couple of years now. Um, and over, I think it was about 28% said that they no longer own a car because of services like Uber. Um, and obviously that was much higher in the younger cohort. So I do think it's an attitudinal shift. And as people grow up with services like Uber, you know, on their phones, and it just becomes part of life. But uh, doesn't that mean that you're actually going to take more people off public transport uh, rather than out of their cars? Because people living in the suburbs are basically not going to buy this model. I mean, I spoke to the boss of Zipcar, which is offering a kind of similar idea, but it's, it's obviously driving it yourself. Uh, and they said very clearly that there's a limit to this, that people inside the centre of towns, fine, they might not own a car. But if you live in the suburbs or even if you live in rural areas, you're never going to go for this model because you're never going to get enough Ubers to come out to the guy who lives five miles outside Woking. Well, actually, we can. <laughs> um, so one of the really interesting things is actually, and this was not something, this was not the master plan, but actually how we've seen our service grow organically is how people use the service. So uh, the night tube was an awesome case study. So, you know, normally you think, hang on, that's a, that's a competitor to Uber because the classic use case is I get out of the pub, 11.30, uh, I've got to get home. Mm -hmm. um, but what we saw in the first six weeks of the night tube is a dramatic decrease in people requesting Ubers right in the city centre, you know, where they normally would but actually a corresponding increase at the end of the line. Um, so what people were doing is they're like, actually, probably because it's cheaper uh, and maybe a bit quicker, is they're getting the tube most of the way and then using Uber to fill that first last mile uh, to get home. But it sounds like that your public transport is very much in, in your thought process as, 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 yeah. as an organisation in terms of, of you don't see it as, as a, a straightforward competitor. It's something that you need to consider within business frameworks and thoughts and, and where you plan for the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the best way I think of describing where uh, Uber wants to go and, and what the app will become is cars are to Uber like books are to Amazon. 
And so actually this multimodal uh, future where you can get around your city you know, or your, your country um, we're using various transport methods, I think is absolutely where we want to go. And the sooner we can get people out of their own private cars, they're more likely to use public transport. You know, if you don't own a car, an Uber's not going to be the perfect solution for all the time. Um, and you know, there, there are some situations where actually the bus, the tube, the train is, is the best option. Uh, and we want to help people get onto and use that by connecting them because obviously the, the train station and the bus can't go to everyone's front door, but Uber can. So if we can get them to the station quickly, affordably, safely, they're more likely to use it. Uh, and that's the pattern we see in our data um, every day here in London and cities across the world. Eugenia, can I just bring you in, actually, because yeah. your company, 5 to 5, advises companies on how they can harness big data to revolutionise yeah. transport. And how exactly does, does that work? And how do you think that benefits, and what, the, what are the benefits to, to society? I think, so we help organisations think about opening up their models, how they do business, how they work together, um, how they partner with startups, whether they have existing relationships with them or not. What I found is that if you have open data, and public transportation has like tons of open data, like more than they can do anything with because they just don't have the staff and the personnel that can actually spend time compiling, cleaning, and aggregating data, is that when you have that, if we take TFL, for example, since we're in London, um, first you save tons of money for the city and the government. I think TFL came out with a report last year saying they spent, saved um, 130 million pounds just because they opened up their data. And what came from that is like, there you go, there's your value for the city, the government, the public transportation. But then there's a bigger value for the people. Um, because of that, because they opened their data, it meant that developers who wanted to create tools for users who had certain issues with the, with the tube, they could build those tools, and that meant that you have more efficiency for passengers. It's that interesting thing where you kind of... I mean, that's a huge figure. Was it 130 million? Yeah, 130 million I mean, million you can imagine where that money could be well spent, just with regards to the infrastructure of yeah, exactly. TFL, whether it be yeah. buses, um, tubes... Yeah, and for people, they have, like, new apps. Uh, the best res- example is, like, City Mapper. if you guys use it. Anyone? Yep. Raise yeah. your hands. Yeah. That came yeah. out because the TFL opened their data. So you have a very comprehensive, multimodal journey planner with updates, and that was all because of open data. They opened it up in New York, and also City Mapper now has become kind of like a thought leader on its own with, like, the, um, they recently created their own bus system just to see um, like a very user-friendly bus to promote it. I would love for the data to be used in a way, um, sorry to throw my own experience in here, but I, my in-laws live out in Gloucestershire and so we always choose to get the train out there rather than drive. It's a nice experience if the train's running well and if it's not oversubscribed and overbooked. Is that how data can be used to positive for public transport, for example, where the, I don't know, the train to Stroud, can, they can see that, oh, wow, there's X amount of people look like they're going to travel on that, so we need to put three more carriages on it. Just to make train travel yeah. a little bit more comfortable and hopefully less expensive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Data is not just a reactive service, I guess, a solution. It's very proactive as well. You can start envisioning and guesstimating, um, oh, you know, we've had these many incidents around this time, so I think next week we'll also have certain kind of service issues around that time. We should have more personnel on the floor. Like, that's very accessible, and that's things that people are thinking about and doing. What do you think, Jamie, is the biggest 
change you foresee in city transport over the next 10 years or so? Um, well, it probably won't be anywhere near as much as people predict. It's, it's, it's all, it's, uh, I think a lot of these things are a lot slower than the hype suggests. And there's that famous saying in technology that um, we tend to overestimate what happens in the short term, but we do underestimate what happens in the long term. Now, I, I was lucky enough to go on a, on a driverless truck in that TV I series. And I, you were I went, I went 120 miles in this enormous 150-ton truck, um, which at the first corner, I was absolutely petrified. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> and it just obviously just smoothly took the corner. And then pretty quickly, you actually get very bored. And by the end, you're just like, when is this journey going to end? I'm really bored of this now. And, and it made me sort of realize that... Um, I think the technology will, will have, the driverless technology is coming. I mean, the speed of improvement is, is dramatic. Yes, there are technological problems, and I'm sure you're going to hear from them in a moment, but I think it's almost inevitable that it, technologically it will be possible. Uh, however, I think that the technologists behind this massively underestimate the extent of frustration and anger that will cause people who work in the industry. Mm. So uh, you saw what happened with the, the London cab protests, but not only here with Uber, but around the world as well. Uh, it's a very, very taut environment. The idea that we might have driverless vehicles, taxis or trucks or whatever on the roads and everyone who works in that industry, which is millions of people, 3% of Americans work in, in driving in one form or another, is um, that they're just going to stand by and let this happen is ludicrous. I mean, there's just going to be political uproar about this. And so, personally, I think that the technology is going to dramatically outpace the regulations, and I think it will be regulations that hold all of this up. And, uh, but in some ways, for some good reason. Mm -hmm. it, technological change like this creates great winners and, and losers. Um, overall productivity might go up overall well-being might go up, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those benefits are spread evenly. And that's another thing that I found in Silicon Valley on this, on this television series. You have a small group of technologists working on driverless trucks, um, and they've created lots of good jobs, lots of good jobs. But th those jobs are in machine learning, and they're in robotics, uh, they're going to very well-educated, relatively high-paid people. Um, and those that might lose work in future are um, college ed not college-educated men usually, um, for whom truck driving in particular is one of the, the, the best-paid jobs you can get. Mm -hmm. um, and you, people in Silicon Valley will sometimes say, oh, those truck drivers or those taxi drivers, they could retrain as machine learning specialists. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, that's not how the world works. So it, to, to, to have a transition where transportation is, is really going to change in the way that people are talking, we have to think as hard about the winners and the losers, mm -hmm. how we can make sure the losers can transition or retrain or there are other opportunities for them, because so, otherwise it just will grind to a halt. And all the best technology in the world, it won't get us anywhere. I mean, yeah, well, I think I'd, I'd agree as well. There's... Um, I think the transition to autonomous vehicles will actually take a long time. One, because it's really, really, really hard. I also think then how we'll see it on our roads, um, or at least how we see it, is you know, 
it will be kind of feathered in alongside um, you know, human transport. And if you think about the transport mix at the moment, there are loads of parts of society and the country that just aren't well served by transport. So rural communities, you know, where bus services are being caught, uh, you know, cut, um, you know, highlands of Scotland, yeah, but Fred, but Fred, different, sorry, but, different yeah. sectors of communities. So there's an opportunity, rather than disrupting the status quo right now, there is opportunity to make the whole transport mix better. But Fred, you're talking... You, uh, uh, with your introductory remarks, um, you, you made Uber sound a little bit like a charity that's interested <laughs> purely in environmental change. Um, well, it isn't. But, but you're I mean, not, it loses, you're, it loses but you're, £4 billion but, pounds a year. But, you're, so not, <laughs> but, you're, but, you're, but you, you're, you're not only there, obviously, to, to, to make transportation better. You're there to make money. And when there are places that are massively underserved, but they're not profitable you won't be going there. I mean, you won't be improving those services because it won't be a profitable thing for you to do. Well, I think that there will always be, in any commercial enterprise, there will always be on the margins where it is or isn't profitable to provide a service. But I do think uh, what the technology enables us to do is push that boundary back further. And so I do think there will be areas and use cases where, at the moment, with you know, existing technology or business models, it's not profitable to serve those. I do think there's an opportunity through technology that you can, um, and autonomous vehicles can help get there. I don't think it'll be a silver bullet and solve everything, but I do think there's opportunity there uh, that, that, that can be met with, with some innovation. One other thing, if I could, yeah, just, uh, if I could just add, the, the nature of machine learning <coughs> algorithms is that they, there's a sort of exponential growth improvement curve because the more data you feed in, the smarter the algorithms get, which means they can collect more data and make more sense of that, which means they can get smarter. So it improves very, very quickly and often faster than we expect, even faster than AI experts predict it will. But there will be an instance at some point of a, of a high-profile hacking case or an error. And I don't mean someone taking control of a vehicle and driving it off the road. It could be something more subtle, P- people putting particular road markings on a road on purpose in order to mess up a driverless uh, vehicle. And it will cause absolute outrage. Even though there's so many deaths every year by human drivers, mm. we will compare driverless vehicles to some utopian there has to be zero fatalities and accidents. Yeah. And it will be, very, will be pretty unfair, actually, how we, we look at the safety record of these cars. And one or two cases, I think, will put everything back a very long way, which is why safety is going to be so important, because otherwise it could be, it could be really damaging. Well, can I, Chris, uh, there is one point that I don't understand about your model. I mean, there's quite a lot. The fact that you lose $4 billion a year is kind of uh, neither here nor there. Uh, you, obviously, that's not sustainable over a long period. But why do you want autonomous cars? At the moment, you have owner-drivers. So the owner-drivers pay most of the cost, the capital cost of what you're providing. If you had autonomous cars, Uber would have to pay for all that. So Uber, which already loses $4 billion a year, would lose massive amounts more if it had to actually buy the cars. So surely the autonomous cars is the thing that would put Uber out of business. No, so I think there's lots of different and emerging business models around the car. So one of (laughs) them is obviously if you believe in this uh, future where fewer people own their car because they've got autonomous cars, if you're an OEM, so a car manufacturer, is you you still want to make cars and you still want to make money for those cars. So you could put those cars on a platform, on an app like Uber or, you know, some of the others and actually turn that asset into a revenue generation 
um, asset for yourself. So, you know, we've done a, a partnership with Daimler Chrysler, exactly that sort of thing. So Daimler would own the cars and effectively monetize that car by having it on the Uber app and people traveling around with it. Other people have talked about how, you know, you might be um, a driver, maybe you invest and you own the autonomous vehicle, and that generates money for you because it's, it's out on, on the app. So these are all different ideas. I don't think there's one fixed uh, model of that, but I think it's probably going to be a little bit of each. Christian, can I bring you in? Because I'd really like to get your opinion, not just on Uber, right. but on, but on the, the bigger question in terms of, of, you know, of technology, transport and the future. What is your opinion on it? Well, uh, I agree with Jamie here. There's, there's always this kind of idea that there is this going to be this silver bullet and that we're going to be uh, transported in a completely different way in, in 10 or 15 years' time, and therefore the existing model is uh, completely uh, useless. But just to give you an example, when I was a kid, um, the milkman used to actually come in a horse and cart. I used to give sugar to the, to the, to the horse. Right? Okay, this is the 1960s. All right, it's mm. quite a long time ago. But nevertheless, it was 50 years or 60 years after the invention of the car. Whereabouts? And, uh, in Kensington, right? And the, the uh, stuff from Howard's was actually delivered in an electric van, right? Because actually an electric van was, was, was considered viable then and in a way disappeared and has now been... Uh, reinvented, but that's just to show how long this kind of uh, the, the, the changes in transport might actually take place. That it was still commonplace in the 60s to see horses and carts when the car had been around for 50 years. So the idea that we're suddenly, and, and I'm glad Fred kind of accepts this, the idea that we're suddenly going to have nothing but driverless cars in the next few years. Uh, is absolutely fanciful. I mean, this, th there was actually an article uh, in Forbes magazine which said there would be 10 million driverless cars by 2020. Well, I can tell you that, and I put this in my book, I'll give this guy a free top-of-the-range Tesla if there's going to be 10 million <laughs> genuine driverless cars by 2020. Right? There are problems with driverless cars that seem almost insuperable. Uh, you know, the snow today is a, is a good example. That, that cars just can't drive in that he heavy, heavy rain. But the, 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 the simplest one that I came across, I mean, quite apart from the one that I like the most, which is what happens when two driver's cars meet in a single carriageway road in the middle of Somerset, right? <laughs> how, do you, how do you sort that one out, right? But, okay, that one's a kind of funny one. But a more interesting one is if you stand in front of a driverless car, it has to stop, right? Law of robotics. It can't kill you, right? It has to stop. So it changes then the balance between pedestrians and cars in favour of pedestrians. But actually the car manufacturers and certainly the driverless car manufacturers would not accept that. So either they'll try and impose rules on pedestrians or they'll face the prospect of anybody standing in front can stop the car and then what President Trump calls bad people could then attack the car, right? <laughs> Where would you like to see the focus directed then what where do you in, well, you're instead of, of of everyone's attention being on you know autonomous cars I, I think, where do you think i, I think there's a real worry about this because i talk to people who who actually are looking at intelligent transport systems and they're really worried that 
the driverless car thing is it's taken away all the money available for research. So, you know, yesterday or the day before yesterday, there was another 22 million kind of announced for autonomous car uh, experiments and trials. There's been 120 million pounds so far of government money gone into this. And that 120 million pounds could be spent on better bus information, you know, more efficient buses. It could be spent on you know, a, a myriad of kind of ways of improving uh, urban transport in much smaller schemes, you know, helping uh, cyclists, you know, my particular kind of obsession or whatever. Um, actually looking at the simpler things rather than thinking that, oh, autonomous cars are going to take over in, in whatever, in 2021, 2024, 2026, or whatever the prediction is, uh, and then not actually looking at how do we make incremental changes to transport at the moment, which is the way that we will get kind of improvements on, on our roads and t- towns and cities. Yeah, I, I totally agree with uh, Christian, because when you talk about autonomous cars, the conversation means that we are thinking in a road-centric, car-centric society, the fact that our, most of our cities are comprised of roads designed for cars means that we're not thinking about the people inside the cities, which like cities are made of inhabitants. So it's like once you shift the conversation to public transportation, which carries about 25,000 people per hour versus cars, which is anywhere from 600 to 1,600 people per hour, it's like why don't we focus our energy on that? And after that, you have pe- people walking in cities is about 7,000 people per hour just transporting through that to cities. So it's, I don't know why... It, I just, it frustrates me that the conversation is always about autonomous vehicles because you could be focused on public transportation, either improving it or new forms of public transportation that actually moves people in cities. I so think um, far more likely is that there will be some kind of a hybrid system. It's going to be uh, relatively simple within five years, I think, to have long-distance truck journeys undertaken by driverless vehicles from once you're outside of a a complicated urban environment and on the big road you can do 95% of the journey uh, autonomously and then you need to go back into, you need to kick back into driver mode when you're going around spaghetti roundabout or whatever it is. Um, And for people that work in this, the idea is that you might have uh, several people, sorry, uh, one, one driver that operates several vehicles simultaneously. So they would be monitoring five vehicles at once, and they could be doing that remotely from an office somewhere, so you're basically turning drivers into office workers, which is another good or bad thing, depending on your point of view. Um, and then they would, vi- they, would, they would remotely pilot the vehicle through the complicated bits. And I think that's, that's going to be cost-effective. I think that's quite possible. I think it's probably going to happen in the U.S. in the next five years. And that, that's an example of where the technology can be employed. But generally, I think that w- the, the situation described with the trucks is, is a really good one, because I agree that's probably going to happen. And then actually, because it's the bit, the long journey on, on the motorway, uh, on the highway, which is the bit which is most dangerous, because people fall asleep at the wheel. It's the bit where if you can get them all tailgating each other really closely, you can make them much more efficient. Uh, so you can save a whole bunch on fuel and emissions. And so, I, I, yeah, I think actually it's a, a fantastic use case of where, rather than this kind of utopia where everything's autonomous, actually in maybe the nearer term, you really get some of the benefits of this technology, mm-hmm. but in quite a practical, tactical way. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'd like to get to the audience, if that's all right, before we come back with some more questions. So if you have, hello, straight in, I love it. If we have someone over this, please stand up, stay stood. Uh, so a lot of the discussion has been around autonomous vehicles and te- uh, technology systems that might make it more efficient. Um, one of the things I'd like to address is, uh, what are we doing about emissions? Um, I just want to hear your comments on what you could do from a government perspective or from a private operator's perspective to further incentivize people within urban cities to, uh, uh, to either buy vehicles that, are, uh, that run alternative fuels or to use vehicles um, that run on alternative fuels. Right. When we go to 80% by 2050 is, is, you know, is the legal standing point now in terms of lowering emissions and, and there's, you know, there's a lot of targets to hit for everyone, isn't yeah. there? Um, yeah, I mean, this is, is something that we're focusing really heavily on. So already in the UK, about 50% of the miles driven on the Uber app every week are in hybrids or zero emission. Um, so we're in an okay place, but we could do much better. And one of the things we're really pushing on is, is how can we get to electric as soon as possible? Um, and what we're learning is there's quite a few things you need to solve to do that. So on the vehicle side, um, you know, we ran a trial with the Energy Savings Trust back end of 2016 um, just to really find out you know, what, what sort of vehicle works on the app. Uh, we found that you really need a range of 120 miles plus, uh, of which there are a few cars at the moment, the Nissan Leaf 30 kilowatts. You know, it, it's good, it's viable, and, and you know, with the new one coming out uh, and all the new models, I think we're in a good place on the battery range side. The cost is a challenge, so you know, we've launched our Clean Air Fund, which is essentially a big fund uh, to generate about £200 million, uh, so drivers can get a £5,000 grant to help them 
buy the new vehicle because at the moment they're just too expensive compared to the, you know, the diesel or the petrol alternative. So mm -hmm. hopefully we're going to try and accelerate like that. However, on the other side, the infrastructure is a really big issue um, because not only do you need to have you know, the chargers in the right place, but when you find the right place, there might not be the land available. But if there's the land available, the grid might not be good enough because when you're sticking a 50 kilowatt charger in, you know, that's a lot of boiling of the kettle. It's a lot, so the, the grid needs to upgrade. So there's, so there's lots of uh, challenges that we need to overcome to get the charging infrastructure uh, there so we can really scale the, the vehicle side. Um, but it's absolutely something that, that we're going for and we're aiming for in London in 2025 for UberX to be fully EV which is pretty ambitious, um, and there's a lot to overcome, but yeah, we're, that, that's the sort of direction of travel that we're it's going It's not one of the, the, the most difficult problems, is the fact uh, of battery production capacity in the world. Um, you know, that they just isn't, I, I know that Tesla is building the biggest factory in the world to, to build batteries, but even with that, you'd need something like seven of those factories in, uh, in uh, Europe to have uh, anything like 50% uh, kind of battery cars, and, and these are mega, mega factories. I mean, is, is that not just an insuperable problem? Well, obviously, we're not every car on the Uber app uh, in the UK at the moment, but you know, I think for, there's clearly to get every car electric in the UK, there are uh, production challenges. But for just those on the Uber app, I think it's, it's something we can achieve uh, with the current production schedules. I think one of the... I'm very excited by the prospect of using deep learning techniques in smart meters to improve the overall energy consumption in homes uh, and how that will... For, there's lots of problems, I think, with smart meters as well, but it's a very exciting opportunity. And I, I don't see why you wouldn't be able to do something similar with car, uh, with the use of, of car energy and distribution of energy and so on that cars use. I'm, I haven't, obviously, as you can tell, I haven't thought this through entirely. Um, but it, it seems to me like it's, it's quite plausible that some of the same techniques that will be developed in smart meters can be also used for, for vehicles as well. Yeah, absolutely can. The vehicle-to-grid technology is definitely coming. So basically, you'll, you'll park it at night, maybe on your drive, and you'll say, well, I want it fully charged by 8 a.m. in the morning. And then overnight, the car will figure out, oh, you know, maybe it's peak time because everyone's having a shower or a bath. So the, yeah. the remaining juice you've got in your, your battery will be sold back to the grid. And then when it's off peak and everyone's sleeping, the car will recharge. And so yeah. you can actually charge your whole vehicle. And that'll be using really, presumably really some of your sort of Technology, you know, your sort yeah, of approach yeah. is yeah, about open data yeah. that you can then learn from as to develop techniques to improve that. What about in terms of, Eugenia, in terms of the, the kind of, you know, the technology versus the kind of green debate, so to speak, as well, in terms of how can technology help address those issues with emissions, with, with climate change, with all those kind of big questions? What does it do towards answering those questions and, and making a difference? I mean, we just touched upon it, but analytics and metrics are a big part of that, just understanding what's coming in, how it's being used, where you can optimize certain processes or automate other processes, and just figuring out what is actually happening instead of just assuming what's happening and not actually knowing. The, um, we're going to bring... Is, is Jonathan Hampson um, in the, Hello, Jonathan. Would you like to stand up, please? Just get your microphone. Jonathan is the general manager of Zipcar UK. Oh. Um, well, I quoted who you, you mentioned, mentioned earlier. earlier. You did. <laughs> um, 
Were you nice about them? Yeah, I was nice. Right, about them. Right. We were very nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, give us an idea in terms of, of kind of where Zipcar is, is kind of positioned with, with what we've been discussing, you know, and, and the service that you provide. Sure. Um, I think from our perspective, and I, I'm focused pretty much purely on urban centres, so I'm, I'm not focused on 10 miles outside Woking, but more urban centres. <laughs> we, we need to have a discussion around how we see the role of the car in the future because those who say that it won't change, the status quo cannot work. There's so many people pouring into our cities that if they keep owning cars, there just isn't the space. So I think we have a decision to make as to how do we want to provide the car in the future and we're going to need to look for more efficient solutions to provide that same liberty that the car provides, but just in a more efficient way. So organisations like mine say, actually, is it that smart having a car sat outside your house for 95% of the time? It's really not. You know, you have to struggle to park it. You'll pay an awful lot of money. If we can make it really hassle-free to use one when you need one, then that feels like a much, much smarter solution for a future city. So I think we need to be providing options to city dwellers as to how they're going to consume the, uh, the car of the future. But we also need to make sure that it works both for the individual and for the city. Mm. I think my only challenge to Fred is I'd, I'd be interested to know what his data shows on the effects ride-hailing has on congestion, for example. Is ride-hailing working for the city as much as it's working for the individual? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think it's a, it's a really great question. One of the things we've seen, you know, going back to talking about shared rides, is when we launched uh, Uber Pool uh, back at the end, December 2015, in the first nine months. Uh, so Uber Pool, for, the, for people who don't know, this is where you can choose on the app to share your ride with a stranger, effectively, up to two other people in the car. Um, it's a bit cheaper, about 25% cheaper than UberX. Might take a little longer because you'll have to kind of detour slightly to drop off, but essentially we try and match you with other people going in the same direction. So in the first nine months, about two million people pooled, and that took uh, 1.3 million miles of traffic off the road. So it's really hard to see something that's not there, but you know, if you had all those shared rides were actually individual cars, you have had a whole bunch of extra congestion on there. I think it's also, when you think of services like ours, um, and the broader mix of transport is our busiest hours are late at night and early in the morning. So when there aren't many cars on the road and there are not actually many public transport options. And so I think you know, it's not about uh, adding loads of vehicles to the roads during the day when we see most of the congestion. Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. You can't, you can't get away with that. I mean, the fact that there's you know, double the number of private hire cars uh, in the last two or three years has coincided with the arrival of, of Uber, and lots of those are your cars, and then lots of them hang around St Pancras and King's Cross and Euston or whatever, waiting for uh, somebody to actually go through the app and hire them, and that has caused extra congestion. Some of that is down to you. You must, come on, you must admit that. So, I mean, there's bound to be pinch points around you know, the, the King's Cross, but the majority of our growth is actually out, um, not in the city centre. It's between, uh, it's that first last five mile in the, in the suburbs. Yeah, five miles outside working. No, but um, yeah, come on, the, the, it's coincided with, with the, your arrival, the fact that congestion has got worse in central London, hasn't it? I mean, when you look at the, the data... Are you saying from, that there's no causality there? Yeah, so when you look yeah, at the data no actually in, in the centre where the, the most congested areas, actually private hire numbers have stayed constant. Where the growth has been is actually where people don't have other options of transport for that first and last mile. That's not what TFL says. 
I think that's what their, their, their recent studies have shown. Lady at the end there, please. Right at the end over there. Thank you. We're all aware that cities are growing rapidly, that it's probably unsustainable for a large, you know, to grow in the way that we're growing. Is really the solution not transportation, but actually wider questions about how do we you know, plan our economy around second cities, more flexible working, making sure people don't have horrific two-hour commutes? Thank you. Regina, can I get you to pick up on that point as well? You raised a really good point in that I think the future transport kind of lies in also considering taking it away from being urban-centric, because when you talk about transportation, you think about cities, population growth, and congestion, all that stuff, but no one's really talking about what's happening to the suburbs or the farms, et cetera, outside mm-hmm. of it. One example that I have that's not transportation-related is that in France, does, has anyone eaten ever like a saucisson? Anyone? Like a, like a French sausage? Yes. They're delicious. Um, what's sad is that because everyone is moving towards these urban centers, um, that in itself is an art, just making uh, saucisson, terrines, all of that French culture, and people are no longer able to do apprenticeships because all of these cooks and potential apprentices are going into the cities, and you're using part of your history and culture because of this mass migration. Mass migration. So it's something that I think we should definitely consider is thinking about what's happening outside of the cities. I think the autonomous vehicle discussion is, is a small part of a much bigger debate about the future of the entire economy based on data, big data, machine learning. And autonomous vehicles is, is, is one bit of that. And I think there's going to be pretty transformational changes to our economies in the next 10 years. And while we're talking about future you know, robot jobs apocalypse, I think it, that's quite misleading. So I don't think that's going to happen. But I think there is a very high prospect of growing inequality in society, technological-led uh, inequality, which will drive more people into cities, in fact. And I think it's going to require quite a significant increase in government intervention to push against that trend. And I think that's what we're going to see in the next 10 years or so. So I, I don't really have the answers, but I think it is going to mean more government. Um, we've got a microphone over there. Yep. Would you like to stand up, please? Hello. Hi. Um, it's not a technology question, and I know that's what we're talking about. But Transport. It is transport. There you go. Um, I've just finished working on a study about congestion in London, and we did find that private hire vehicles contribute quite heavily to congestion in the centre of London, and that by far the most kind of space-efficient modes are active travel modes, which is cycling and walking, and then public transport as well. So I'm kind of wondering, I know we've got two cyclists on the panel, but I'm kind of wondering how active travel fits into the kind of future transport scenario and whether if there's a reason that can't be future transport, if there's a reason why cycling is not actually a better choice than taking an Uber for the first or last mile of your journey, maybe not at one in the morning, but for the rest of the day, um, or sharing a vehicle through Zipcar or, you know, whatever. Um, I'm just wondering, kind of from a societal perspective, how that fits into the transport mix, really. Great question. Thank, Thank you. you. Christian, do you want to pick up on yeah, that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think one of the developments we haven't talked about is uh, the dockless bicycle hire uh, thing, which uh, is uh, kind of growing around London, Offo and Mobike and the like. But, you know, I think that offers a great opportunity, if handled rightly, um, and, and there are issues about it, like, you know, Islington, where I live at the moment, is somewhat cluttered up with these bikes, but they're just developing the business and, uh, you know, it could make a radical change. 
I, I think cycling, I don't want to bang on about cycling too much, but I do think that cycling has been underestimated as an agent of social change. You know, it's healthy, it uh, enables people to get around cheaply, it's environmentally sustainable, uh, and it, you can easily attract lots more cyclists by providing the sort of infrastructure that um, I don't like to speak well of him, but Boris provided kind of, uh, you know, with the help of Andrew Gilligan to London. It has made a huge difference. And look at Copenhagen where you know, people, people live longer because they cycle. So I think it's a very good question. I think cycling is at the root of this. Gina, do you, do you kind of collect much data that involves, you know... I, I don't personally collect data. I just think people's data. <laughs> no, but, 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 the, but your company, does that come into to, to any kind of, you know... It, what I do think is a little bit problematic is all the different startups for the bike, the bike sharing startups that you can park anywhere. Seems like a great idea. Uh, one bike company in particular called Gobi Bike rolled out in France in October and Brussels and other places. I got an email this weekend saying that, hey guys, we're sorry, uh, we're shutting down in Europe operations because we lost about 40 to 60% of our fleet within the first month of people just vandalizing <laughs> it. So I think it's good to have all these solutions, but at the same time, it's even better to have solutions that actually address problems. And when we talk about silver bullets and things like that and for transportation, sometimes I feel like we're talking about like something, a shiny object to play with more than an actual solution for things that people need. Jamie, do you want to pick up? Do you want to add something? Um, no, only, <laughs> not really, but only to say that um, there is presumably going to be some exciting new tech that can just in the way that the, the theft levels of cars has fallen dramatically because of improvements in technology. I imagine the same is going to be true of bicycles. And so if we can work out a more efficient way of having a docking system where you can get them in North London, where I live, where you don't need these annoying docking things, but there's another way that makes them still secure, mm. I think that would make a very big difference. Uh, and then you would be able to go door to door rather than dock. I've had a situation where I missed a train because I couldn't get a space in a docking system in Paris, and I'd to cycle about a kilometre away, yeah. just, which was almost where I'd come from. And so, the, so the, 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 I'm sure there are going to be technological solutions to that. But just to bring it back around to autonomous vehicles again, in the recent Californian report on, on the progress of autonomous vehicles, the, I think that the most significant cause of, not accidents, they don't use the word accidents, but where a driver has to take back control over a vehicle while they're testing it, was cyclists. Uh, they are actually a pretty big problem for autonomous vehicles. And I know as a cyclist that cyclists are terrible I think they're the most dangerous things on the road. I mean, I know, apart from pedestrians. So, 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 so the, when, when we are going to have more cycles, which I hope we do for lots of reasons, it's going to cause some other problems, actually, for autonomous vehicles. Right. I'm just uh, looking to get the result of the Twitter poll from someone, actually, which I'm not quite sure how I get that, but I'm sure someone will bring it to me on a card or something. I think we have time for maybe one last question, if... Here we go. She's got a mic. She's there, right there. Hello, sir. You Hello. Up? I came by bus. Please stand up. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Um, it's been very interesting hearing about these modern technologies, for example, like the Hackney carriage, which has been around since the 1800s, the bus, uh, the omnibus has been around since the 1800s, uh, the car has been around since the late 1800s. Will future transport systems benefit society? I haven't heard anything about a future transport system. Trains, sorry, I should have mentioned trains, 17th century. 
future well, transport. Well, one of the things we're working on is flying vertical takeoff and landing uh, electric autonomous flying cars. Uh, Whoa, it's Blade Runner. So, yeah, I mean, that just blows my mind. It's quite hard to talk about it with a straight face. But um, no, so, I mean, that, that's something which uh, is definitely, I think, yeah, a bit next level. How many um, years? Well, so the, the, the commitment is the first test flight in 2020. But, um, uh, and it's, we're working with three cities to do that. Uh, I've got to remember this now. Uh, LA, Dubai, and Dallas. Um, and working with, we don't want to build or, or run um, or own these, these flying vehicles. Uh, so we're working with a couple of American companies who are going to build it. We've hired a chap from NASA who's come over to help us think through with the cities what the aerospace um, legislation needs to look like. How are you going to kind of manage and control these, these, these vehicles flying around? Um, how are you going to fuel them? With ChargePoint, who... Uh, actually, uh, uh, they, they manufacture charging stations. We're working with them, them here in London. But they're building, you know, these kind of superchargers that can, can power the batteries of them. So, I mean, that's definitely something uh, that, that, that's going to really push urban mobility in, into the next, you know, the next wave. Uh, you interested? we'll see it on a, in the skies I, to us soon. <laughs> but we'll see. I, I, I read about those in the Beano when I was in the 1960s. <laughs> and and they, they, they haven't happened. I mean... The trouble is that a lot of these things that we're talking about, I think the, 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 the idea that the lady from HSBC had about you know, facial recognition and <clears throat> you know, adjusting seats automatically and stuff, these are dystopias, aren't they? They're not utopias. And I think the idea of having uh, planes whizzing around, either delivering things for Amazon or carrying people uh, individually and making a hell of a lot of noise in my back garden, these are dystopias. They're not solutions to, you know, rational solutions to the existing problems, which are things like congestion and bad air and uh, unhealthy people because they sit too long in cars and all those things. None of this seems to solve any of those fundamental problems. Eugenia? Or am I missing something? What? I think it's more about in terms of the, the gentleman's question. He just he wanted an idea of what you all saw as being the transport of the future, not about agreeing or disagreeing with someone else's idea. But what do you see as being the transport of the future? Uh, well, I, I, I'm, you know, a place where you could bicycle safely, a place where you could walk safely, where you could have a bus uh, every two minutes down the main roads and maybe do the last mile with a, uh, an off bike or. Uh, maybe even taxi Uber for the last mile, but you'd, you'd have such an efficient system that nobody would want to use their own personal cars because the personal car, in economic terms, causes more externalities uh, to other people than it gives you benefits, and that's the fundamental problem. Right. Seeing as we've been, we've, been, we've been sort of being hard on Uber a bit, um, my girlfriend, for example, says that she, she can now go out places that she would not have been able to go uh, 10 years ago before Uber because she wouldn't do long walks from bus stops to places. There were places where taxis wouldn't turn up. And so there, So aside from what you think about individual companies, the availability of, of ride-sharing apps for a lot of people has been a public benefit. It's allowed people to get together in, in new ways and I, and I see that benefit all the time. I think there's probably more we can do to shape some of those benefits greater so they're more widely spread, but we shouldn't ignore them. And some of the exciting technology that we are talking about, I'm not sure about the flying cars yet, but let's just do the autonomous vehicles first and then get to the flying cars. Do you want them? Flying cars? No, autonomous cars. Do you want autonomous... Well, what I was going to say about that is I, 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 I think they will be safer, definitely. 
I think there'll be lots of benefits to them. I just worry greatly about where the benefits are going to fall and that, the and that there's going to be a lot of Social collateral damage that we're not thinking about. And so that's part of the public... I mean, some of this exciting technology, if it can also be used on buses, on ambulances, on police cars, on other public services, I think there's great benefits for all of us that can be more widely spread. So I'd like to see how we can, we can maybe mix up the ownership models of some of these technologies as well. Eugenia, what about for you? Where do you see the future of te technology with transport? I mean, I would really like to see um, public transportation be improved and seamless. I think that's where the answer lies in terms of future systems. The system isn't totally broken. It just needs to be improved and built upon. Um, and one that actually addresses user problems and needs. Too many times the conversation is about oh, this will be a good idea because I think this is happening, but no one is actually going out and talking to users and writers asking questions, which is just basic best practices. Like, just talk to the people and see what's actually needed. So right. user centricity. Um, final word from you guys then, because we asked you the question earlier on, would you give up the prospect of ever owning a car in favour of shared transport solutions, which would cut London's pollution? And 53% of you said yes. 47% of you said no. Does that result surprise any of you? Well, I think, actually, in, in some ways, when you look at um, how cities are built and designed, they kind of force us into car ownership and use. So, you know, whilst I agree with a lot of the, uh, the comments here and some of the questions that are there at the end about this kind of multimodal, super seamless way of using, you know, buses and bikes and Ubers and walking, is actually there's some things around how our cities are built and designed that kind of force some of the old ways, car ownership and, and use upon us. Mm. And so maybe there's a, a wider role that city planners can play in uh, to help kind of get the pole a little bit more equivocal one way. If you grew up in my town, where I was from, in Chatham, in Kent, it would be 95% of people would say no. Because you, there was, you, you just couldn't do anything. Same. It was the best thing to get a car of your own because it gave you some freedom. Yeah. And there was nothing else. I was stuck so, in a fishing village if I didn't get my car. I, was like, <laughs> I couldn't go to the cinema, go and watch live music. It was, yeah. it was freedom. It was, uh, it Wheels. Was a step, Wheels. It was a step yeah. into mm. the, you know, the big bad world. Mm. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Can we have a round of applause for our panel as well this evening? Fred, Eugenia, Jamie and Christian. Take care, everyone. Safe journey home. However you travel. You've just listened to the Intelligence Squared podcast produced in partnership with Shell. Join the conversation online using hashtag MakeTheFuture. Thanks for listening.